So Psalm 10. I don't know if you've heard, um, in Christian theology, there's a, a popular expression that I think is very helpful in understanding the Bible and what it means to live in the world um, as a Christian. And it's this phrase, the already and the not yet. And there's lots of places where it applies. It's the idea that already Christ has come. He's died on a cross, but in dying on a cross, he put death to death. Or as C.S. Lewis said, death begins working backwards from the point at which Jesus comes and dies on a cross and is resurrected to new life. That's the already, but not yet, is the full consummation, the full working out of that death and that power in the world. So already he has come and he does the work of putting death to death, but not yet do we see all things made right. Already and then not yet. And it's important to understand that. There are, you know, even when you think about living as a Christian and the fact that we still sin and we still do the things that we don't want to do and don't do the things that we do want to do, to quote the Apostle Paul from Romans 7, this already not yet perspective is very helpful. For instance, if you forget about the not yet and you think, well, Jesus died, the Spirit lives in me, therefore I should be able to get it together. And we'll talk about this actually next week a little bit because this passage in Galatians that we were going to study where Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but he who lives in me. A lot of people have misunderstood that passage to say that basically I'm gone and now Jesus just replaces me and therefore I should be living this life without sin, without struggle, which of course will really mess you up if you think that. And then there's people who really are, are so focused on the not yet, um, they, they, they lose sight of the already. They're, they're so focused on all the things that I don't do that I want to do that they lose sight of what Jesus has done for me. And that already I'm beautiful in God's sight even though not yet do I live the life that he and I want me to live. The already, the not yet. But what I want to talk about in particular tonight is what do you do when the what is right now makes it hard to believe the already or the not yet. You know what I'm saying? What is it, what is it like to live when the what is what you're experiencing right now makes it difficult to believe that the already has happened at all and difficult to believe that the not yet will actually come one day. And that is the place where we need to understand lament and the importance of lament. And I don't know if you've ever heard a sermon on lament. It's not a popular topic, even though it's all over the place in the Bible. It's one of the most common categories of the Psalms, which are the songs that God has given his people to sing. But we don't talk about lament very much. Tonight is a good night to talk about it. Let's pray, sorry, let's read 
Psalm 10, and then I'll pray the Lord will help us, and we'll dig into Psalm 10 and what the Bible has to say about lament. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high, out of his sight. As for all his foes, he puffs at them. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. He sits in ambush in the villages. In hiding places, he murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws him into his net. The helpless are crushed, sink down, and fall by his might. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Arise, O Lord. O God, lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you, sh you will not call to account? But you do see, for you note mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands. To you, the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. O oh Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. Strong words. For some of you, you may wonder, what is that kind of song doing in the Bible? For others, you're like, thank God that that kind of song is in the Bible. Let's pray, and then we'll dig into this. Lord, we do thank you that your ways are not our ways, and that we come now to consider a topic that we don't often think about, though we very often need. And we pray that you'd help us tonight, not only just to be convinced of the importance of lament, but to even be able to unburden ourselves to you, to cry our tears, to even scream to you, because you are the father of the fatherless. You do see, you do hear, and you will make all things right one day. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. What kind of song is this. Do we sing these kind of songs very often? Do you hear these kind of songs on the radio? Um, I don't know if this billboard is still there, but for many years, if you drove uh, on I-40 West from Nashville to Memphis, you would see this 
big, huge billboard for a Christian radio station with this tagline, safe for the whole family. Used to drive me crazy. Is that what Christianity has been reduced to? Something that's safe for the whole family? Do we sing songs like this? God thinks we need to sing songs like this. Even in reading it and thinking about the events in Las Vegas, it's eerie, isn't it? And while we wrestle and wonder about such evil, we wrestle with where is God in the midst of a world where this kind of stuff happens it's been going on for a really, really long time, hasn't it? It's also remarkable, I think, not only that this stuff is in the Bible, I think it's remarkable that it hasn't been edited out. I do. I mean, for some, the fact that this kind of song is in the Bible is a barrier to belief. Like, how can you call for God to break the arm of the wicked? Did that bother you? But I'll tell you, if songs like this aren't in the Bible, I'm not sure I could believe. Even if it's in the Bible, you have to ask the question, do God's people, quote unquote, edit it out practically by never really reading these kinds of songs? Or by trying to explain them away? I mean, this psalm ends and things aren't right yet. There are other psalms that end even more unresolved, like one of my favorites, Psalm 88. Do you know Psalm 88? Psalm 88 ends, this is the last line of Psalm 88. Darkness is my closest friend. There's no, but now that I know Jesus, everything's better in Psalm 88. It just ends there. And I'm so grateful that we have a psalm that ends without resolving because very often that's where we are. Here's one of the things that you need to understand about Christianity is that God doesn't ask us to pretend that we're something we're not in order to come and be with him. And I think a lot of People's struggles with Christianity, both those who have been raised in Christianity and those who maybe have not been raised in Christianity trying to figure out what it's about, I think the fact that we don't sing songs like this, that we don't take seriously the Bible's call for lament, makes it seem like Christians are not in touch with reality. In fact, some people, I think, if you ask them about Christianity, they would say, well, why would I want to be a Christian? All the Christians I know kind of close their eyes to injustice and brokenness and pretend that because they know Jesus, everything's fine. I could never be like that. Or some people might think, well, Christians just seem to have this ability to keep their head up and to keep a smile on even when things are falling apart. I just don't have that ability. I don't know what it is. Some people just sort of have this kind of buoyant temperament, and I don't have that, so I'm not sure I could really be a Christian. Do you know how damaging the lack of lament is in people trying to understand what Christianity is really about? Because Christianity does not ask you to pretend, and Christianity does not ask that you're able to wump up joy 
even when your life is falling apart, even when the brokenness of the world has really hit you in a huge way. I think we should actually be more surprised when life goes well. There is actually a, a, a term for this that theologians use. They talk about common grace. Common grace means that God gives grace to all people. That's the common. Not grace that saves everybody or brings them into a saving relationship with him. But it's grace that makes life more bearable. The Bible says, actually, we don't even experience the full brokenness that we should. There is common grace. God sends rain on the just and the unjust. He gives good gifts to his people. As a matter of fact, Paul in Acts, I think it's around 13 or 14, in talking to some people who are not from a Jewish background, they don't know the scriptures, they don't know Yahweh, the God of Israel, the true God, and yet he still says, God has put joy into your hearts through crops and through rain. And that means the natural world and also even human culture is one of the ways God has put joy into your hearts, even you people who don't know him personally. So there is common grace, and yet we feel the brokenness. I find the Bible's teaching on suffering is the one that rings most true. I ran across this quote from Tim Keller, pastor up in New York City. Maybe you've heard of him. He says this, Christianity teaches that contra, contrary to Buddhism, suffering is real. You understand, Buddhism says that suffering is not real. That the best way to deal with the perceived suffering is to close your eyes and smile. And that's, of course, how the Buddha is always pictured. But contrary to Buddhism, Christianity teaches that suffering is real. And contrary to the idea of karma, Christianity teaches that suffering is often unfair. It's not just what you deserve. And contra the secular worldview, suffering is not meaningless. There is a purpose to it. And though we are not promised clarity in this life, if faced rightly, suffering can drive us like a nail, like a nail deep into the love of God and into more stability and spiritual power than you can ever imagine. Jad Packer, one of the great theologians of the 20th century, said one time that Christianity in America is 3,000 miles wide and about six inches deep. And one of the reasons is because we don't know how to lament. We don't know how to lament. Well, let's explore the biblical idea of lament and look at Psalm 10. Um, the first thing I would say is lament looks honestly at the brokenness. Things are not the way they're supposed to be. And lament invites us to tell God how we really feel. Look at verses 1 through 11. We won't pick out all these verses because there's a lot. And they're basically saying the same kinds of things over and over again. But why, O oh Lord, do you stand far away? Now, the one writing this psalm, we, we believe it's David because it seems to be a companion to Psalm 9 where David is listed as the author. It seems that 9 and 10 kind of go together. David knows that God is near. But he doesn't sense that God is near. And what he's saying here in verse 1 might even be like theologically not exactly 
right, but it's what he feels. And he's being honest. Lord, why do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? And that's an honest expression of what he feels. And then as he goes on, you realize why he feels this way. Because he can't get his mind around the fact that God is a good God and the wicked are running around free to do whatever they want. Even cursing God. In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor and let them be caught in the schemes they have devised. For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. How can you be present, close, Lord, and this be going on? But notice, it's not just venting. He's not just saying, I don't like this. I don't like this. No, lament is taking an honest look at the brokenness and complaining to God that this is not right. It's not the same as grieving. Grieving is important. It is. But lament is another level. Lament is saying to God, this is not right. This is not the way it was supposed to be. Do you see that? Like what's really kind of stuck in his craw here is these things aren't right. You need to judge these people. They're cursing your name. They're oppressing people made in your image. It's not right. Now, complaining to God that it's not right implies that each one of us has a sense that things should be right. Maybe it's a distant memory for you. Maybe it's an unmet longing for shalom. But what the Bible says is every one of us resonates with this idea of lament because we want to say more than just, I don't like this. In a lot of ways, you know, a, a lot of, you know, people would talk today about, well, you know, you've got your idea of truth and you've got your idea of truth. And they basically say that you can't say anything is right or wrong. All you can really say is, I don't like this. That's pluralism, pushed to the extreme. All you can talk about is personal preference. But lament comes in and says, that's nonsense. Every one of us knows that you need to be able to say more than just, I don't like this. You know there are things that are not the way they're supposed to be. You know that, and I know that. And the Bible dignifies that and says, let me explain to you why you feel that way. It's because every one of us was made for shalom. Now, that's a Hebrew word. It's usually translated in your Bible, peace, but it means more than just the lack of hostility. It means everything in its right order and right relationship. Everything being right and beautiful in God's sight. When God looks at the creation before sin has entered the world, and he says, this is very good, that's him saying, shalom is here. Shalom. Now, the Psalms teach us that this lament is best done in a community as a corporate expression. And I think that's important. 
Because sometimes you need other people to help you see the things that you're not mad about that you should be mad about. As a pastor, I have this opportunity quite a lot, actually. Particularly when people talk about their past, maybe things that have happened to them, often people don't feel mad like they should. Particularly if they're Christians. They think, well, I should just you know, be okay with this. Particularly people that have been abused or sinned against horrifically often don't know how to be mad. Maybe don't even feel like they can be. And it's so important that we, as a corporate body, be able to regularly say, there are things to be mad about. And if you can't get there tonight, let me help. <laughs> Let's talk about some of them. We did that, that prayer, right? As a reminder, maybe you thought, oh man, yeah, there really are a lot of things that are broken. Maybe something like, you know, Las Vegas just sort of wakes you up a little bit. But there's so much, so much. Lament is best done in a community as a corporate expression. We need a community that knows how to lament. Nicholas Walterstorff, a Christian philosopher, theologian, lost his son in a climbing accident. And he wrote a book about it called Lament for a Son. It's a very powerful book, and I want to read you two little sections from it that might be helpful. He says, please, don't say it's really not so bad, because it is. Death is awful, demonic. If you think your task as comforter is to tell me that really, all things considered, it's not so bad, you do not sit with me in my grief, but place yourself off in the distance away from me. Over there, you are of no help. What I need to hear from you is that you recognize how painful it is. I need to hear from you that you are with me in my desperation. To comfort me, you have to come close. Come sit beside me on my morning bench. Now, I think it's interesting when you think about that quote and what he's longing for. Of course, God himself is the ultimate expression of this. But God calls us, the members of his body, to be that for one another. I know when I was, uh, I, I had a very traumatic experience in uh, my senior year in high school, a friend of mine that got murdered, and I thought that because I knew God was sovereign that I shouldn't cry about it. I just thought that that wasn't appropriate. And it kind of fit into the way I wanted to live anyway. Um, I just didn't really feel comfortable feeling things. So it was pretty, pretty easy. And I remember even after seminary, um, a pastor, mentor of mine said, Kevin, if you never learn how to weep with those who weep, you may be a good teacher, but you'll never be a pastor. And we need to learn how to weep with those who weep. Not just try to tell them that it's really not so bad. And don't you know, Jesus does not stand off at a distance and say, it's not so bad. Jesus came and lived among us, died a torturous death that made him cry out, my God, my God, why? Jesus never comforts from a distance. 
Later in the book, uh, Walter Storff talks about the need for us to have fellow mourners, and he uses this great phrase. He describes the, the ones who mourn as aching visionaries. Listen to this. He says, who then are the mourners? The mourners are those who have caught a glimpse of God's new day, who ache with all their being for that day's coming, and who break out into tears when confronted with its absence. They are the ones who realize that in God's realm of peace there is no one blind and who ache whenever they see someone unseeing. The mourners are the ones who realize that in God's realm there is no one hungry and who ache whenever they see someone starving. They are the ones who realize that in God's realm there is no one falsely accused and who ache whenever they see someone imprisoned unjustly. They are the ones who realize that in God's realm there is no one who fails to see God and who ache whenever they see someone unbelieving. They are the ones who realize that in God's realm there is no one who suffers oppression and who ache whenever they see someone beat down. They are the ones who realize that in God's realm there is no one without dignity and who ache whenever they see someone treated with indignity. They are the ones who realize that in God's realm of peace there is neither death nor tears and who ache whenever they see someone crying tears over death. The mourners are aching visionaries. While the Stoics of antiquity said, be calm, disengage yourself, neither laugh nor weep, Jesus says, be open to the wounds of the world. Weep over humanity's weeping, but do so in the good cheer that a day of peace is coming and has already broken into the world. Aching visionaries. So lament calls us to look honestly, but it does more than that. Lament cries out to God for justice. It is more than just grieving. It's a crying out for God crying out to God for things to be made right. And I thought this was interesting. A friend of mine, Jeremy Reeves, said this, a cry for relief only makes sense in a story whose storyteller has said, I will make all things right. And to lament is to believe that so, believe that so deeply that we ask God to enact this resurrection and restoration story right now. In other words, the cry for relief is even evidence that you're in a story that will have a resolution, that will have a happy ending, a glorious, joyful ending. So this cry is more than just grieving. It's a crying out for God to make things right, and it's an honest cry of anger Listen, that is invited by the security of our relationship with God. It's not just saying to your father, I'm sad. It's saying to him, this is not right. And the question is, what kind of relationship do you need to have where you can honestly say what you really feel about how not right things are? Dan Allender, a great Christian counselor in his book, The Cry of the Soul, about how our emotions reveal things about who God is. Fabulous book, highly recommend it. He says this, To whom do you vocalize the most intense, often inarticulate anger? Would you do so with someone who could fire you? Or cast you out of a cherished position or relationship? Not likely. 
because you don't trust them. You don't believe they would endure the depths of your disappointment and confusion. And so the lament is never expressed, nor the anger ever addressed, for fear that consequences would occur that are more devastating than the potential joy of reconciliation. The one who hears your lament and far more bears your lament against them, paradoxically, is someone you deeply, wildly trust. To sing a lament against God in worship reveals far, far greater trust than to sing a song about how happy we are and how much we trust Him. Lament cuts through insincerity, strips pretense, and reveals the raw nerve of trust that angrily approaches the throne of grace and then kneels in awed, robust wonder and hope. Do you believe that God loves you so much that you could say to Him, even wrong things? Or do you think that you've got to get it just right? That you've got to clean up your words before you talk to him? See, this is one of the reasons the Psalms are so helpful. There are things in the Bible that would shock you. There's a place where Jeremiah the prophet says to God, you have overwhelmed me and I was overwhelmed. But it's a word that has the connotation of sexual abuse. He's basically saying to God, I felt like you date raped me. Do you know that a prophet can say that to God? And it's in the Bible. Listen, there is nothing that you can't say to God. And sometimes when you don't even know where to begin, the Psalms give us divinely appropriate words. I remember um, Psalm 13, what we used as the call to worship. When I uh, spent some time in seminary as a hospital chaplain, just volunteer a little few hours a week, I would often go into a person's room, usually an older person, and as we would talk, often they would be very bitter about the fact that their family, that their kids weren't coming to visit them. And as you would talk to them, you would say, often you'd ask, well, you know, you sound angry. And they'd always be like, oh, no, 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 I'm not angry. I'm not angry. They were obviously angry. And Psalm 13 is one of the psalms sometimes I would say, could we read this together? Do you think David in Psalm 13 is angry? Absolutely he's angry. And the idea that we could express anger to God for a lot of people is just astonishing. But it's there. You know, John Calvin... A great theologian, um, not a perfect man, no one is. But he had a great thing he said in his commentary on the Psalms. He said, basically, I consider the Psalms an anatomy of the soul. He said, there's not a single emotion that humans feel that's not somewhere there in the Psalms. And sometimes you don't even know you're feeling it until you pray it in the words that the Psalms give you. It's why it's good to not just go to the Psalms when you're already feeling something, but to actually go through them regularly from beginning to end. It's also a really good idea to read all the verses of the Psalm. I know sometimes like, we'll sing songs in churches that'll be like, this is Psalm 139. I remember Psalm 139, we used to sing a little song, a little Amy Grant song years ago called Everywhere I Go, Everywhere I Go, and it's this little uh, reggae song, and it's this little comforting song, right? But you know, there's more to Psalm 139 than that. Psalm 139 also talks about wicked men who've hemmed me in. 
And then you're like, oh, now I understand why the psalmist wants to run away from God. It's not a song about, I can't go away from you. There's a line in there about, even if I make my beds in the depths of Sheol, in the depths of a hell, I can't escape you. And then you read the rest of your psalm, you're like, oh, I understand why he wants to run away. There's not, you know, sometimes we just like to read the happy parts of the psalms or write songs, and we call it like Psalm 139, but it's really just the three happy verses from Psalm 139. But God gives us the full psalms, right? Well, the next point. Lament means waiting for God while never losing our hunger for justice. And that's hard because, as I said, there's this already not yet Principle. One of the great ways to see this is in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 8, where it says that God has left nothing that is not subject to Christ right now. But the writer of Hebrews says, but we don't see it that way yet. Now, I know there's a lot of people that have been raised with a theology that Jesus isn't really on the throne. Maybe he's not on the throne of your life until you let him. That's hogwash. He's always on the throne. He's God. You don't make him God. But there's a lot of people that think he's not really in charge of this world until the millennial kingdom. That right now, if Satan is in charge, that's not true at all. Hebrews 2.8 says, right now, he is on the throne and everything is subject to him. But Hebrews says we don't see it that way. But nonetheless, it's true. That's the already and the not yet. And there seems to be a lot of evidence to the contrary, a lot of evidence that God is not on the throne. Particularly the fact that the wicked don't just seem to survive, they succeed in crushing their helpless victims. Listen, I know there are people in this room who have lived through situations that are very difficult to reconcile with God being on the throne. And some of you have heard stories, maybe you haven't personally experienced. The already than not yet is hard to believe. It's hard to believe that Jesus has conquered sin and death. And it's hard to believe that his love and justice will prevail forever. And you know, some people say Christianity is for people who don't want to really think about hard things. Actually, I think that Christianity makes some things harder. You know, Rabbi Kushner wrote this book. Um, what is it? Um, well, he basically says, you know, why do bad things happen to good people? That's the name of it. Why do bad things happen to good people? And what he says is, God cares, but he's really not all powerful. So you need to cut him some slack and forgive God. And he's a kind man. He thinks this is helpful. But you see, they're one of these situations where believing what the Bible says, that God is good and God is sovereign and powerful, makes some of these things harder. It may seem actually easier to believe the world is the way it is if you believe like Rabbi Kushner, Rabbi Kushner that God is good, he's just not powerful. But then you can have no real hope that things will be put right. Real Christianity is not an escape from thinking about hard questions. Actually, some questions get harder. David here is struggling because of what he knows about God. And I, I do think this is interesting to think about. Tim Keller, in his most recent book, talks about how there's a new kind of struggle that suffering has provoked that's really 
different than it's ever been in the history of the world. Listen to what he says. He says, ancient people were arguably much more acquainted with brutality, loss, and evil than we are. Their literature, the book of Job being one example, is filled with laments about inexplicable suffering. Yet there is virtually no ancient thinker who reasoned from such evil that therefore there couldn't be a God. Ancient literature is full of laments and descriptions of suffering, inexplicable suffering, but no ancient philosopher reasons from that to the fact that therefore there can't be a God. Charles Taylor explains why modern people are far more more likely to lose their faith over suffering than those in times past. He says it's because culturally our belief and confidence in the powers of our own intellect have changed. Ancient people did not assume that the human mind had enough wisdom to sit in judgment on how an infinite God was disposing of things. It's only in modern times that we get the certainty that we have all the elements we need to carry out a trial of God. Only when this background belief in the sufficiency of our own reason shifted did the presence of evil in the world seem to be an argument against the existence of God. It is assumed, not proven, that a God beyond our reason could not exist. And therefore, we conclude that he doesn't exist. And Keller would say, if God is big enough for you to be mad at him for the way things are going, how can you not then be open to the fact that he might be big enough for you not to understand why he's doing what he's doing? Now see, as we come to a close here, how the psalmist takes comfort. He takes comfort in God's character. And I think one of the things that lament should help us to do is to go from just why questions to who questions. Who is a God like you that even seeing the brokenness that surely must break your heart does not act yet? Who is a God like that, right? Who is this God who invites us to weep and to rage to him? And the psalmist says, verse 14, you do see. It's not that you don't see, you do see. That makes it all the more perplexing to me. You are just, and you will take things into your own hands. You will hear. Now we who live after the cross have an invitation to ponder these two questions in an even more profound level. One of my favorite verses in Isaiah 59, where it says, the Lord looked... And he was displeased that there was no one to work justice for the oppressed. So the Lord took matters into his own hands. And he himself works justice. And that is one of the servant songs that speaks about the coming of Jesus. When it says here that God will take our afflictions into our hands, literally Jesus, God made flesh, took the suffering and the sorrow into his very hands to deal with it not just temporarily but definitively. The cross is the ultimate revelation of the character and the promises of God. Jesus broke the arm of the wicked like the psalmist cries out for, by being broken for us. 
Colossians 2 talks about that very thing, that as he was stripped and humiliated on the cross, he actually stripped the powers and the principalities of their power. And don't you know that God himself endured the most intense mocking when people stood at the foot of the cross and slandered him, saying the cross proves that you're not God's anointed. Listen, it's difficult today to believe the already and the not yet as we sit in the what is. But how difficult was it to believe on that first Good Friday? It looked like God was gone. It looked like God was doing nothing. It looked like there was no way that the already could possibly be accomplished. Everything had come to a disastrous ruin. And yet when it looked like there was no already that would ever be accomplished, God was actually accomplishing his greatest work. If you'd been there looking at Jesus hanging on a cross, you would have concluded that God was doing nothing and you would have been absolutely wrong. So be careful what you think about what he's doing now. William Cooper says it well in his great hymn, God Moves in Mysterious Ways. Trust not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace Beyond a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. One last little thought. Again, from Nicholas Walterstorff. As he talks about and wrestles with, is it okay to cry he gets to the end and he says, No, I shall not pretend. Instead, I shall look at the world through tears. And in doing so, perhaps, I shall see things that dry-eyed I could not see. What it means to be a Christian, to grow as a Christian, is to have the things that make God angry make you angry. To have the things that break God's heart break your heart. It's what it means to long for his kingdom to come. It's what it means to be part of his mission where he is pushing back the gates of hell, the gates that will not stand as he moves forward, as death works backwards. Let's pray together.